0: My friend Marshall says he spent a lot of time trying to convince me and my best friend Barbara to have sex with him when we were teenagers. I don't remember that part. He says he was the boy who was always the friend, a source of endless frustration. I just remember him as a warm and funny kid. Barbara was my best friend since grade school. I often treated her to the Burger Deluxe at Burgerama on Chancellor Avenue, came with coleslaw and fries, because I had an allowance and she didn't. We would often lie on the bed in my room listening to Beatles records. She had a thing for George, and for me, it was always John. In class, we'd pass notes about which boys were cute and wrote poems to each other signed with our fake names, our alter egos. She was Phoebe Schofield, and I was Frosso Excedrin. I remember us laughing hysterically in a rainstorm on the steps of Wake High School and peeing our pants. We'd put on the soundtrack to Zorba the Greek and dance around my living room, and as the music reached its frenzied conclusion and the apartment could no longer contain us, we ran down the stairs and ecstatically burst out onto the street. Marshall, Barbara, and I lived minutes from each other in Newark. Marshall introduced us to his best friend Gary, and then we were four. Lewis would soon make five. We'd formed a special bond and assumed we'd be friends forever. But I would leave Newark before the end of high school, and as the years went on, I lost track of all of them. The morning after learning of Gary's death, I wrote to a friend who had invited me to a local temple's Yisker service and asked that Gary's name be added to the list that the rabbi reads of those who have died in the previous year. Marshall immediately came to mind. He would have wanted to stand beside me at the temple when Gary's name was read. But Marshall was in California, which I had only learned a year ago. I actually hadn't seen him since 1969. And that wasn't a very pleasant meeting. By the fall of 68, I'm now a student, a college student, and I'm a freshman at Boston University. I wasn't there very long. I was there for three months. I dropped out. A lot of people were dropping out. I had this female friend who was also dropping out. We got this apartment. And then we lived there at least another year.
1: You're a year away or a couple of years away from high school, but it seemed like you've left it completely behind I mean, you. Lewis, Marshall, Gary, you weren't really connected You mean about. the
0: newer crowd? Yeah, you weren't really the connected way crowd by the
1: time you got to Boston.
0: It seems like everybody just dispersed. I didn't know where Marshall was, and I didn't know where Gary was. I didn't know where my friend Barbara was. Um,
1: you, you had no idea Marshall was in in, in Boston. Or...
0: It was completely weird the way that I discovered Marshall's presence in Boston as hanging out at the student center. I don't even think of a student anymore. Friends were with me, and then I spot this group, this, like, circle of people sitting. They just seemed very serious, different somehow than the rest of the people hanging out in the student center, and they were having a very solemn conversation in hushed tones, and there was Marshall. I couldn't believe it. There he was, the same clothes he wore as a boy in Newark, so there was the yellow, those stiff yellow work boots, and the jeans with the rolled-up cuffs, and a short sleeve white t-shirt. That was kind of his uniform. And I walked closer, and I must have called out his name in a kind of excited way, you know, to see him. And he took his solemn steps away from the group, and he was not smiling. And he came up to me and said, don't say my name out loud. Shh, shh, shh. Don't say my name out loud. And then something about we're anonymous here. We don't use names. And he was very cold. And he, he was not at all the loving, fun-loving boy. I thought we would embrace. I thought we would be thrilled. I thought we would laugh. I thought we would go eat something. You know, just be normal. But he wasn't acting normal. And I know he was trying to get me interested in the political activity he was in, which wasn't completely clear to me at that point. And I was very frightened because he just seemed angry. He seemed disappointed that I didn't want to rush into joining them. It was kind of scary. It was very shocking. And here he was, this boy that I had watched TV with in Newark and stuff, a cold revolutionary. And he was mad at me.
1: And that's, that's kind of how it was left for a long time, right? That was I mean, it. That's the last time That was the it.
0: That was the last time. It, it didn't seem like he would have wanted me to contact him. I mean, he didn't even want me to use his name. And it was it was a terrible way to, to have to remember him. And and then there was an even more terrible thing. Which was that in the seventies, I think it was, I came upon an article in Esquire magazine about radical groups that quoted a nineteen sixty-nine headline from the Chicago Tribune, Police Altercation with activists. And this sentence leaps out at me. Naming Marshall as a nineteen year old weatherman seen crawling away with gunshot wounds.
1: And that's that's kind of how it was left for a long time.
0: That was it. I didn't know if Marshall was alive or dead. I'd heard rumors about him running a taco stand or being in Cuba. I'm not sure why I didn't try harder to find him. I did feel a little estranged after the way we left things in Boston. And he obviously didn't try to find me. I always assumed he was disappointed in me for not becoming more radical politically. When it eventually became possible to use an internet search, I would look every now and then. But nothing ever turned up. And it wasn't until 2014 when I tried a search... And then I finally came across something. I found a clip on YouTube from a 60th birthday party. A little celebration of him with cakes and candles. I'm not sure I believed it at first. Could that
1: be him? So special and wonderful for me to have... <clears throat> Oh, my girlfriend, family, family. <laughs> thanks everybody for the wonderful birthday. way to spend the day after my birthday.
0: There he was. Older, but it was him. Definitely him. And then I hurriedly checked Facebook next. I mean, he was on YouTube. Maybe he'd be elsewhere. He did have a page, but it was very sparse, almost nothing. But I thought, what the heck, I'll send him a private message through Facebook, not really anticipating that he would check it, but it was worth a shot. He responded. We started exchanging emails and ultimately had a phone conversation. It was so amazing to hear his voice. We were practically laughing and crying at the same time as we talked. I learned that he'd been married several times and had actually been in California for 35 years, owned a restaurant, worked as a medical coder. And then he said, of course, I was the last person to see Barbara. What do you mean? I asked. Marshall sounded stricken. Oh, God, you didn't know. I can't believe you don't know she committed suicide. Everything dropped inside my body. Marshall was very shocked that I knew nothing about Barbara's death. He just assumed I'd have known about it. But the last contact I'd had with Barbara was in 1974. We exchanged letters, and she had written to me about her life as an aspiring actress and some of her struggles with depression. And then we had a visit, and it didn't go well. And from what Marshall had said, it wasn't so long after that that she died. I was flooded with guilt and worry that I'd done something wrong. We had been such a tight little group. Me, Marshall, Louis, Gary, and Barbara. We had all loved her. Marshall felt terrible about having to be the one to tell me the sad news, and it was hard to recover, especially over the phone. He went on to say he was retired now and was able to do some traveling, and I was then thrilled to find out that he already had made plans to come east with his girlfriend, so we arranged a visit. When they drove up to my house in the rental car, I was excited and nervous. Marshall walked towards me, arms outstretched, and we embraced. I don't see Binnie, he said. I could have dropped to the ground in despair, but I kept it together. What did he mean? Was I so completely changed? no small essence of the 16-year-old girl he had known. I still had all of Barbara's letters, even notes and doodles from grade school, and I had pulled them out in anticipation of his visit. I had also arranged to interview him about his time with Weatherman. I always knew if I ever saw Marshall again, I would want to ask him about it. I had no idea really what his experience had been like, and this was my chance. It was a nice day, so we sat out on the deck. I told him about the bad visit with Barbara and my fear that I had somehow let her down. He felt guilty, too, and described a visit from her in California. She was depressed and called him from her motel room one night, very upset. He went over there and stayed for hours trying to comfort her, but eventually he had to go home and she had assured him she wouldn't do anything to harm herself. But she didn't keep that promise. I read him a part of Barbara's letter from 1974, where she recounts a story from 1969. She wrote, I was sitting in a film class, and before class started, I was looking over this newspaper and read that Marshall had been killed in Chicago. I called the place where Marshall was staying, and he was fine, and told me that he had given his identification to some other weatherman or something. So Barbara and I had gone through the same shock and worry and misconception about Marshall, but she was able to check on him right away. After hearing what Barbara had written, Marshall clarified that he was in Newark at the time of the shooting in Chicago that he and Lewis were actually recruiting for Weatherman before leaving for Boston to officially join their collective. Barbara had also referenced this in a letter. She wrote, I was living in an apartment in North Newark, and one day Marshall and Lewis and their women, two obnoxious black leather jacket chicks up front types, came in and tried to talk me into coming up to their Boston Weatherman Collective and fighting for the revolution. Gary was at my apartment at the time, and unhappy at school and wanting to be around Marshall and Lewis, went off with them. Lewis was so bitter, I hardly recognized him. And Marshall just stared at me with these hurt eyes, and the two women kept screaming at me for being a bourgeois revisionist and I ended up kicking them out of my house. It was really a very painful experience. When it was time to start the interview with Marshall about Weatherman, I asked him about this run-in with Barbara in Newark that she'd described and the encounter with
1: me in Boston. What I thought at the time, you know, when, when I was 19, 20 years old, was that I was the one who was putting my money where my mouth is and the rest of you were were, were posers and that's why I was such an asshole to you at the time, you know. Um, and, of course, it was completely wrongheaded of me, you know.
0: So why did you join Weatherman?
1: I wanted the world to be just and fair and equal and... I wanted the world to be organized along those principles and I became convinced through a series of accidents and arguments and you know that the idea of bringing down the current order and creating something new at almost any cost was (laughs) not only appropriate but necessary and essential you know, I think there was an element of guilt to it. There was an element of, I mean, part of it was a sense of vast possibility, but part of it was a sense of desperation and and guilt, you know, that said, okay, it is necessary that we give everything we have, including our lives, to try to create the world that we want to live in. And that creates a certain kind of can, can create a certain kind of fanaticism and blindness to reality and i think that people in my generation a lot of us basically were kind of driven crazy by the war in vietnam and by racism we saw the world as being you know we saw the war as being so evil and we saw what was being done in our name as so evil and we we spent years trying to stop it and we couldn't stop it you know <laughs> and at a certain point we just decided we have to we have to stop it if the only way we can stop it is is throwing our our bodies in front of this machine and we would have done anything you know we would have done anything and we felt like we had to and we owed it to The people of of Vietnam and all the other countries that you know, we had this vision of of history and of what was going on in the world that demanded of us that we do anything to to try to bring down the machine.
0: Give us a little bit of an idea of what it was like to actually be with a collective. I mean, literally, what was the physical daily experience like? It was
1: horrible. (laughs) It was horrible. Um, You know, there was no privacy. You, You were supposed to be living up to this revolutionary ideal. And one of the one of the mechanisms that we used to, and we were supposed to be trying to sort of create the new man and the new woman. And one of the mechanisms that we happened upon to try to do this was this thing called criticism, self-criticism, which is sort of like, if you can imagine like the old, there used to be encounter sessions, you know, where you'd stay up for 24 hours in a room with people and, well, imagine that, but the entire time is directed at Improving one individual person in the room <laughs> and showing them the error of their ways, <laughs> and I, most of the time that I was in Weatherman, I, my my primary motivation was trying to avoid being the focus of a criticism, self-criticism session. Which I, which I, pu- I pulled off. I mean, I was successful at it. But I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one story of the worst thing I ever saw in Weatherman was. And I was part of it. I mean, I I I did my best not to not to be involved, but you had to be involved, otherwise they would turn on you. I sat through a criticism, self criticism session of this guy, who admittedly was an asshole, but nonetheless, somehow, went through this night long criticism, self criticism session of him and what was wrong with him and how uptight he was, or I, I can't remember what the focus was, but somehow. We ended up at a place where it was decided, probably by the women in the room, <laughs> that he was hopelessly uptight and repressed, and that the way to fix his problem was for him to masturbate in front of us, all like 24 of us. And we made him do it, and he did it. and. That was the most, one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life. And I lived in such terror that something like that was gonna to happen to me. So I spent most of my time in Weatherman just trying to sort of stay in the shadows, don't say anything too controversial. If you were too complacent and too, you, you didn't participate enough, that could be, you, you could become a target at that point. So you, it was a very fine line, you had a balance. You know, and I just tried to be a good functionary and do what I was told and not make waves and not get in trouble because I didn't want this to happen to me. And when I got to leave to go to Cuba and sort of escape th- that that level of madness, uh, I, was, I felt very fortunate and very, very free. But other than that, it was just you were hungry a lot and you were tired a lot. And, you know, you get up every morning and you'd scrounge around in this big pile of clothes and try to find something that fit you because you didn't have, you weren't allowed to have personal possessions, so you couldn't have clothes or books or anything that belonged to you. You had no money. Brown rice and vegetables was like a big treat, you know, that was like good eating. I did learn to be a very good panhandler and a very good shoplifter. You got to get laid a lot, but usually with people you—I mean, it was very, sort of anonymous. I didn't really like having sex in a room with twenty-four other people. You know, I, you did it was no privacy. You—you didn't—you weren't allowed to have personal space, and it, it wasn't a lot of fun.
0: Let me tell you a couple of things I've heard. You tell me whether they're
1: true. They took away your books. Oh yeah, they took away everything. You didn't have—you weren't allowed to have personal possessions. So whatever you had was gone. Separated couples? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, I joined Weatherman with my girlfriend from college. You weren't allowed, monogamy monogamy was considered a a sin. You know, right up there with capitalism, (laughs) you know. And so you weren't allowed to have one-on-one relationships. You know, you weren't allowed to have monogamous relationships. And at a certain, another thing that happened towards the end was that do, there got to be this big thing of that if you were just heterosexual, that meant you were like a bourgeois uptight person. So there was this a lot of pressure for women to have sex with women and, and men to have sex with men. I managed to avoid that as well. I, there were certain pl- things at which I, I just decided, not that I was going to stand up and say this was wrong, I'm not going to do this but that I would find some sneaky way without exposing myself of getting out of it.
0: What about this one? Everybody get naked and take acid
1: together? Oh, yeah, yeah. Although, we, again, I, I think, I can't remember whether I pretended to take it and I pretended I was high or what, but I, wasn't, I was not going to do that, but I was not going to say no. And I, I managed to survive that. I'll tell you, my, one of my best times I had in, in the entire time I was in Weatherman was that we had several houses, right, so, which were apartments, right, that somebody lived in this apartment and now all of a sudden 12 people were living in this apartment, right? And we had like 3 of these scattered around. There was some reason why everybody had to be in this one apartment, but they needed one person to stay in this other apartment so that the cops wouldn't bust it or something like that. And I I I wrangled that. I met cuz it was going to be a night that I could be by myself. <laughs> so I I got they let me do it. And I remember I went out and I I I panhandled enough to buy a quart of chocolate ice cream. And I went and I bought a quart of chocolate ice cream and I went to his apartment and I sat there by myself and I ate it and I was it was the, it was one of the best nights
0: you radical time. you I was relieved the cold judgmental revolutionary was gone my childhood friend Marshall was with me the visit had been rich and bittersweet there's Benny he said at one point looking at me Something in the mouth. We played guitars together. I still liked him. Marshall had been the one to tell me about Barbara, and now a year later, it was my turn to deliver some sad news about Gary. I emailed him a note with the obituary, and then later that day, I went to the Yisker service at the temple. The rabbi read Gary's name. I stood up.
1: Come back baby Mama please don't go It's the way I love you You never know It's come back baby Let's talk it over
0: 10 Days in Newark is produced by Scott Shapley and me. I'm Binnie Klein. For more information, 10daysinnewark.com.